Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. In last week's episode, we looked closely at Hezekiah's model prayer to me. Our reply message to Hezekiah, through Isaiah, of course, is a masterpiece of voicing and illustration, as Assyria is first cast as an adolescent girl making faces behind the back of our virgin daughter Jerusalem, not realizing that by mocking my daughter, they are also mocking me. Shift to Assyria personified as a boasting commander ticking off his list of trophies, then to my voice bringing it all in for a landing. Assyria's become too big for his britches, ignoring the fact that none of those conquests were possible without me. In days of old I planned it, now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. That's 2 Kings 19.25, Isaiah 37.26, within Isaiah's full message, within verses 20 to 34. Now, however, because of Assyria's arrogance, I will put them in their place and send them back the way they came before they can so much as shoot even a pea at Jerusalem. Assyria crossed the line. They'd had permission to exile the northern kingdom. We've been through that but not Judah. And so the consequence dealer becomes the consequence feeler. Assyria has transgressed the limits we placed on them by destroying Lachish and threatening Jerusalem. Hezekiah has remained faithful to us and called for our intervention, and we are tied by covenant with David to Jerusalem and the throne of Judah therein. As a consequence of all these things, during that night after Hezekiah cries out to us in the temple, the Assyrian camp gets a visit from the same angel that walked the streets of Egypt to bring the final plague upon Pharaoh and his firstborn. Sennacherib wakes to find that most of his warriors are dead, and the murdered citizens of Lachish avenged. Not surprisingly, he hastily returns home. These shaming details are not included in Sennacherib's relief, just as Egypt handily fails in her public records to mention getting conquered by their own slaves. However, there is in the Assyrian record a surprising halt to Sennacherib's conquest of Judah when all things pointed to his creaming Jerusalem as badly as Lachish. When Sennacherib gets home, he is ignominiously assassinated by two of his own sons, an embarrassing end to one who thought and boasted so strongly of his own might. Chronicles rejoins Kings and Isaiah at this point, summarizing all the previous in a few sentences. Because of Hezekiah and Jerusalem's escape from certain destruction, other nations bring tribute to me and Hezekiah, as a matter of course, in Jerusalem, demonstrating that I am exalted in their sight, 
just as Hezekiah reasoned with us in his prayer, it would be so if we saved him as he requested. Second Chronicles 32, 20-23 Because Hezekiah has been such a stand-up fellow all along, we extend him the rare special courtesy of advising him ahead of time of his coming demise. This is not done in the same way in which Sennacherib's death was forecast in judgment, but in a you'd-better-put-your-house-in-order-because-you're-going-to-die kind of way. Isaiah's exact words to Hezekiah during the king's illness are in Second Kings 20 and Isaiah 38. Well, Hezekiah raises another well-reasoned prayer to us, reminding us of his faithfulness to us in heart and deed while crying his eyes out to boot. We hadn't been causing an unnatural end to his life in the first place. We were just letting him know. Now, however, in answer to Hezekiah's prayer, we prevent nature from running its course at the time and give him another fifteen years. Years that will be free from disease and Assyria. Isaiah tells the king to have a poultice of figs applied to his inflamed skin. Uh, You don't get to know the nature of Hezekiah's affliction. And Hezekiah recovers. Note our use of what would be thought of as a medical procedure in their habitat to heal the king. I'm not saying that's the only way we work, but that that is squarely in our toolbox. No need to stock up on fig poultice, though. One does not know how a single shift like this, a longer life for Hezekiah in this instance, can alter the course of larger events. In Hezekiah's case, our blessing upon him is obvious to all. In addition to all the tributes sent earlier, we further bless him and the nation with renewed abundance, all of which the surrounding nations notice, including Assyria's growing greatest enemy, Babylon. In fact, upon hearing of Hezekiah's miraculous recovery from what was thought to be certain death, Babylon's crown prince sends envoys with a present and letters of congratulations to Hezekiah. While this may seem to be a friendly gesture, it is also a wily act of diplomacy as Babylon is ascending in power in the region. Such a deed on their part towards the only king who's been able to stand up to Assyria is a considered act to gain access to learn more about Judah. And boy, do they learn more. So giddy is Hezekiah to be receiving ambassadors from Babylon that he loses all sense of good judgment whatsoever. Wanting to impress the Babylonian celebrities and show them how great Judah has become, Hezekiah shows these guys all his assets, and I mean everything. Weapons, silver, gold, all the way down to the high-grade oil and spice used in the kitchen. As Kings and Isaiah sum up, there was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. 2 Kings 20.13, Isaiah 39.2 When all the pomp and circumstance of the state visit draws Isaiah's attention, The prophet asks Hezekiah who these strangers are. Hezekiah, still proudly oblivious, boasts that he's hosting some diplomats from up-and-coming Babylon. You can just see Isaiah's furrowed brow when he asks Hezekiah, 
And how much have you let them see? Everything. They're really impressed by it all, replies the clueless king. And so Hezekiah's lengthened life is a factor in the doom of Judah. Isaiah levels the prophecy that all the king has just shown to Babylon's envoys will in fact be carted off to Babylon in the time of Hezekiah's son's heirs, who will themselves be castrated to serve as eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. All this from the boastful pride in our heretofore hero Hezekiah's heart having to show off and impress a few total strangers. That Babylon will carry Judah into exile is such a done deal to Isaiah, when his next chapter begins, he is already addressing words of comfort to his people while they endure their Babylonian exile. That would be Isaiah 40, which begins with the famous words, Comfort, comfort, my people. We will, of course, get there with you ourselves in the next episode. Isaiah's service to the kings and people of Judah alters at this very point. As you can see from his book, he still has plenty that is, in fact, of great significance to say. But the prophet prince permanently shifts to broad Abraplan-shaping strokes, delivering hope and guidance in exile's aftermath. This shift is primarily the feature that moves some to think another author splices in at this point, on which we've already commented. After pronouncing the prophecy of exile at the hands of Babylon to Hezekiah, Isaiah is done with personal interaction with Judah's kings. Hezekiah should be tearing his clothes again at the sound of Isaiah's prophecy of exile, but so decayed is the king's judgment at this point that his reaction is relief and a bit of dark joy in the neighborhood of schadenfreude that these consequences are going to hit the next generation, not himself. The remainder of his 15 bonus years plays out without any further significant developments within Judah, but he's already done enough. And across his extra years, Babylon is in the process of growing from kingdom to empire. Of course, at the time, Isaiah is the only one who knows how foolish the king has been, and Hezekiah has in fact for the rest of his earlier life trusted in us and turned the hearts of Judah back to us. And so at his death, Hezekiah is buried with honor in the tombs of the kings, leaving his twelve-year-old son Manasseh to reign in his place. Picture a pendulum at the peak of its swing, and let us say that peak is on the way and the nearest it can get to us. That'll represent Hezekiah, who, despite his episode of imprudence there at the end, is one of the much better kings in David's line. Then let that pendulum swing back past the center equilibrium position all the way through to as high and far away as it can possibly get on the other side. That will be Manasseh in comparison to his daddy. The kid makes his grandpa Ahaz look moderate, and King's is so damning in its account, not that the chronicler pulls any punches either, mind you, that Manasseh is put right up there, or rather down there, with Ahab himself in terms of the extreme vileness of his corruption. 
2 Kings 21, 2 Chronicles 33 contain accounts of Manasseh's reign. As if that's not enough, Manasseh is said to be so depraved that he surpasses the pagan nations in his degeneracy. I mean, it's hard to find something we have condemned that Manasseh does not both do and lead our children into doing as well. He rebuilds all the high places and altars his dad had pulled down. He worships practically every god other than me, including the stars themselves. He sacrifices one of his own sons by fire. He embraces necromancy and sorcery, and he even erects a statue of Asherah along with altars to other gods in my house. Just in case the severity of this last act be lost, both kings and chronicles deftly and briefly cite my proclamation at the temple's dedication declaring it to be the locus of my name and presence among my people. Were you to go back and read our entire declaration there in Second Chronicles 7.16 and its context, you'd see that the quoted passage includes most explicit warnings of what will happen if my people turn away and forsake me and the way. Thus it is from this dissolute extreme that Manasseh does the most extensive about-face in all the owner's manual. In Chronicles, that is. The writer of Kings is so angry with Manasseh and wants infamy alone to be associated with his memory that this next episode recorded in Chronicles is missing from Kings entirely and the reprobate king in Kings remains so to his grave. In terms of Manasseh's dramatic about-face, of course, he needs a bit of a nudge to get there, which we send in the form of a successful strike-force attack by Assyria. Sennacherib's son, Esarhaddon, is reigning at the reins over there now. The strike-force captures Judah's king and drags him back to Esarhaddon's new rebuilt capital. Nothing says humiliation better than shackled feet and a hook in your nose which is how Manasseh is dragged into his Assyrian imprisonment. Just like a child in a time-out is told to think about what they've done, Manasseh has some time for contemplation in his cell and comes to the right conclusions with regard to his current situation. In his distress, he concludes his only hope is to turn to me, which he does humbly asking for forgiveness and surprise, 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 help in getting out of the tight spot into which he's gotten himself. In order for him to serve as an example for reprobates for generations to come and for other covenantal reasons, we look with favor on Manasseh's remorseful penitent cries. Esarhaddon has a change of heart, don't you know, and sends Manasseh back to Judah with his tail between his legs, firmly subjugated as a vassal king in Assyria's pockets, as attested by their memoirs. Read it yourself on the Esarhaddon Prism, column 5, line 55, on display at the British Museum as part of the Library of Ashurbanipal exhibit. As you're noticing, they've got quite a collection there on Great Russell Street. Though Manasseh is still technically enthroned in Jerusalem, 
His prior duplicity has ensured that Hezekiah's noble trust in us only briefly avoids for Judah the mantle of subservience. There's so much more to come in the story of Manasseh and his second chance. We'll have to save it for next time. In the meantime, keep walking with us on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.